If you joined with us last week, you'll know we're in Pentecost season. It's that time in the, in, in the calendar of the church when, when we remember the, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and the initiation of the church's mission. And last week, Michael talked to us from Genesis about the Holy Spirit in creation. And this week, we're continuing our series by thinking about the Holy Spirit in Jesus. And with that in mind, our Bible reading this morning is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And we thank, we thank God for his word this morning and trust that he'll bless it to us. Uh, it's a short reading. It's only a few sentences, but there is so much jammed into these few verses. So much that's, that's important, so much that is significant. And we have two very different scenes here. The first at a river and the second in the wilderness. And we'll take each one on its own. Um, first at the river, at the River Jordan. We're told by Mark, at that time, or in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. But what sort of days were these? What was the situation Jesus was stepping into? I don't know about you, but, but during the first lockdown way back 14 months ago, or however long it was, one of the things I missed, if, if you know me, it, it was McDonald's being closed. And I remember being so excited when the date was finally given for the reopening, okay? And if you can remember, it was a big deal. I think some of the queues were over two miles long to get near to a McDonald's in some parts of the country. And I was hoping for this, and I was so excited, and I knew exactly what I wanted to get. And here's the thing, when I got it, I was bitterly disappointed. Bitterly disappointed. It was rubbish. And here's the thing, sometimes hope can let us down. And for the people of Israel, these days, at this time, there was disappointment. There was frustrated hope. They felt a bit let down. And... It was in this time that it was called the Age of Silence. It was around 400 years since the last book of the Old Testament had been written. The years since were considered the years of silence. The Jewish rabbis taught that with the death of the last three prophets, the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn. As a substitute, the Lord had given them something they called the Bath Call, literally the, the daughter of the word or the echo of God's voice. But of this they were sure, the age of Moses, David, Isaiah, that age had come to an end. And there was something else. When Solomon built the first temple, 
He prayed and it was filled with the glory of God so that the priests couldn't even enter into it. And so great was the joy of the Lord's presence that the festivities lasted for 23 days. Now, can you imagine spending 23 days in this church and wanting to be there? But so great was the sense of the Lord's presence. Now, ultimately, that temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed and Israel was taken into exile in Babylon in 586 BC. And upon their return, a second temple was built. Right worship was restored, a time of hope. But history didn't repeat itself. This time around, there was no fire from heaven. There was no cloud of, of, of presence. So there was a question. Have we really come home from exile? Has God really returned to his people? And their circumstances backed up their suspicions. As a people, they were under the cosh, harshly treated by the occupying Roman forces. Poverty and injustice were rife. For your everyday, hard-working Israelite, these were not good or easy days. Yet at the same time, their hope was not utterly frustrated. Deep down, they still had a hope that God would very soon come back to his people. And through his spirit-filled Messiah King, God would rescue his people, deal with their sin. There would be joy, healing, and restoration. And God would dwell with his people he would be accessible, he would be present. So when Mark says, at that time, or in those days, this is the context, this is the scene that Jesus was arriving into. Days of hurt, but also days of hope. And my question for us this morning is this, what sort of days are you living through right now? Maybe they're good. I really hope they are. But maybe they're kind of tough. You're dealing with hurt, loss, disappointment, really difficult, messy situations. Every week, uh, at most youth things I run, I ask the young people to rate their week out of 10. Um, they're really bored off it, but I love just getting a sense of how they are. How would you rate your week out of 10? And if it's a low score, I suppose the question is, where are you drawing your hope from? And is it maybe possible that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God, these things we're thinking and talking about this morning could make a real difference to your situation? So in those days, Jesus comes from Nazareth. He comes to John the Baptist and is baptized in the river Jordan. And as he emerges from the water, John sees the heavens open and the spirit of God resting on him like a dove. Now to understand what's going on here, we need to look back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit is God's power and presence. 
Sometimes God gives his own spirit to important people. Judges like Samson receive the Holy Spirit and get superhuman strength to perform mighty deeds to rescue God's people. Kings like Saul are given the Spirit as a sign of their authority to rule from God. Prophets received the Spirit and were inspired to speak the true words of God. But the Spirit was also associated with people who were still to come in the history of Israel. The Messiah, God's rescuer king, would receive the Spirit to mark him out with authority and power to deliver the people. And then in Isaiah, we find another character, the suffering servant. Among other deeds, this servant would represent the whole people and bear their sins. Isaiah says of this servant, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now remember what we said, because this is significant. These were the days of the Bath call, the daughter of the word, the echo. There were no direct disclosures from heaven via the Holy Spirit. Yet here, incredibly, in these days, the spirit comes from heaven to rest on Jesus and God speaks directly for the first time in 400 years. And this is what he says. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you get it? Do you get the significance of these words? This this isn't just a, a pat on the back a bit of affirmation for Jesus from his heavenly dad before he begins his work. This is the living creator God speaking for the first time in centuries. And the words God uses are a deliberate mix of two verses in the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, the most famous Psalm about the coming Messiah, God says to the coming king, you are my son. Here to Jesus, God from heaven says, you're my son. And we already heard God's words about the suffering servant in Isaiah 42. The servant is the chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him. From heaven, God says to Jesus, it is in you whom I delight. So at once, in an instant, Jesus is declared to be both the Messiah and the suffering servant. And that means nothing less, nothing less than the kingdom of God is at hand. The day of God's visitation is upon them. The days of joy, healing, rescue, forgiveness, justice, they really have arrived with this man, Jesus. The people's hope was ultimately not in vain. God is speaking through his spirit again, And that spirit has been given to Jesus. Yet really importantly, Mark doesn't mention anyone else other than Jesus at this stage receiving the Holy Spirit. And that's because Jesus is the unique man of the Spirit. And his mission would be the mission of the Spirit. Michael Green says, 
Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of his unprecedented endowment with the Spirit of God. He is both the unique bearer of the Spirit and the unique dispenser of the Spirit. Moreover, forever afterwards, the Spirit remains stamped with his character. In those days, those days were still dark in a lot of ways for a lot of people. But now, with Jesus on the scene, arrived full of the Spirit of God at last for his light in the darkness. So we move in an instant from the river to the wilderness. Now, now after Jesus' baptism, we we might have right away expected wonders and, and deliverance and miracles. But no, Mark tells us, at once the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Why? Why the wilderness? Well, it has to do precisely with Jesus being the Messiah and the servant. The people of God had spent 40 years in the wilderness and had failed the Lord at every turn. But Jesus, in his wilderness journey, resists the tempter. For the first time, a hero binds the evil one. And that means nothing less than Satan's days are numbered. And this theme plays out in the exorcism stories that follow. But I think there's more here. The other gospels make it clear that the temptations Jesus faced in the desert were temptations to take an easier way, a quicker path, a shortcut to the kingdom. But Isaiah makes it clear that the way of the servant was going to be a way of suffering. The servant would be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So day one of Jesus' ministry and the cross was already in view. You see, this wilderness test was a preparation for all the other wilderness tests Jesus was soon to encounter. The wilderness test of every broken life he was about to step into, the wilderness of betrayal, the wilderness and God-forsakenness of Golgotha, and the wilderness of every broken life he has encountered since. And this theme of the suffering servant runs the whole way through Mark's gospel. Jesus sums up his spirit-empowered mission in Mark 10, 45. He says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus describes himself as a doctor who has come to help the sick. Now, while miracles and deliverances from evil spirits are certainly part of Jesus' kingdom ministry in Mark, the compassion and faithful presence of Jesus, the service that we see at every turn, are no less part of that spirit-empowered kingdom action. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to serve. An important Greek word and Mark's gospel is, is erkamai. Okay, that's a word you can learn and impress people with, right? 
And it's actually a really simple verb that means to enter into or move towards someone or someone. Ask the Spirit-filled Lord, enacting the kingdom of God. Jesus is constantly moving towards people. The Spirit leads him consistently into their messy, broken lives. And broken people seeing Jesus up close choose to enter into Jesus' presence. And Jesus makes time for them. By the end of the first two chapters of Mark, Jesus has taken Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and healed her. He's embraced and healed a despised leper. He's welcomed a hated tax collector into his group of disciples. And when four friends break through a roof to get their friend Jesus, Jesus heals a man and forgives his sins. Sometimes when we talk about God with us, um, incarnation, do we really grasp how personal and intimate God's presence is? Sometimes if a great person dies, the news will say their presence will be really missed among us. Yet it's very unlikely we were ever even in that great person's company. But Jesus, the suffering servant, enters right into our brokenness. He steps and chooses the step led by the Spirit into our shame. Like with Zacchaeus, he comes to your house for tea. And he is not overcome by what he sees. He's not surprised by what he finds. He doesn't look away in disgust. He doesn't flinch. He isn't overwhelmed. There's an unpopular doctrine that theology students learn called the doctrine of divine impassibility, not impossibility, impassibility. It says that God cannot suffer. Uh, and when I first heard about this in college, I really struggled with this idea because it made God seem cruel and distant. But actually, what it means is not that God isn't provoked or moved by our suffering, that the testimony of Scripture is really clear. God is moved by it. But the doctrine of divine impassibility means that God can never be overwhelmed by it. God is able to be with us right in the heat of the flame, right in the toughest part of our wilderness place, without passing out or abandoning us. In it all, He's still God, and he's still sovereign. Now, in contrast to Jesus, the Pharisees and religious leaders in the story do not practice erkamai, right? Instead of moving close, moving into, they sit back, they move away, they observe Jesus, they plot at a distance, and they are untouched by his compassion and show no compassion themselves. So as we finish up this morning, there's two really simple things I want to say. And the first thing I want to say to us this morning is that as the man of the Spirit, Jesus is able to be with you at your worst. Jesus, the Lord, gets right into our broken, messy, wilderness places 
And in that place, precisely in that place, he won't flinch or bat an eyelid or turn away. Are you willing to receive Jesus into your wilderness, into your shame, your guilt, anger, worry, doubt, fear, whether it's physical sickness or mental exhaustion, Jesus can be a loving Lord in that place. He can be our hope, our rescuer, our friend. A young person um, said to me this week, Jimmy, I sin way too much to be a Christian. I sin way too much. Now, this young person, he, he isn't perfect, but he's humble, kind, gentle, and hilarious. I love him to bits. And it upsets me that he thinks his sin is too much for Jesus to bear. You know, I, I think sometimes an awful lot of people have come to think of Christianity as a self-help method, a self-improvement project. It's a way to become a better person. You need to already be in recovery before you can invite Jesus in. You need to already be halfway up the ladder, show that you're able to do things, and then you can bring Jesus along and he'll help you get to the next rung. But remember how Jesus described his mission. He comes as a doctor to heal the sick. He comes as a servant to rescue us from our sin. And yes, God is holy. He is immortal and dwells in inapproachable light. We should be fearful before this holy God. But when we follow Jesus up out of the Jordan into the brokenness of his world, we see this same holy God take the initiative to move towards us despite our sin. And then through the cross, Jesus bridges the gap so that we can be with him now and for eternity. And Jesus can be with us in this very instant. If we ask him, he'll come to us as a friend, as a brother, faithful through thick and thin. Right now, Jesus is ready to make the move towards you. He's waiting. Or are you going to be like the Pharisees? Sit back at a, at a social distance, okay? Make judgments about Jesus from a safe distance. Or maybe we're so ashamed of what we've done. Or we've been so badly hurt but we put up a wall around our heart. We're not letting anyone get near there. No one is going to see or touch that part of my soul. And I get that. But the thing is, Jesus, and maybe only Jesus, can cope with it all. Every single bit of it. He already bore it on the cross. And the resurrection shows that it has been dealt with now and forever, and that he can even build beautiful things out of our brokenness. 
me and Lindsay went for a, for a meal on Monday night. It was her first time in a restaurant since, since August. And uh, it was great. I, I ordered a fish pie and Lindsay was disgusted. She's like, your first time out and you order a fish pie. What are you thinking? But it was so nice to actually be served by people. But on the other hand, it was also a bit weird. We were so used to cooking for ourselves, we felt we should be going into the kitchen to help wash the dishes. But here's the thing it's precisely as a servant, and only as a servant, that Jesus comes to us into our brokenness. The second thing I want to say is this as Christians, our lives are an extension of the life of Jesus. And Mark 8, Jesus makes it really clear what he expects of us. This is what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Every Christian has a part to play in extending the territory of Jesus' kingdom. And we are each gifted with the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus to make us strong for that task. And I sincerely hope that each of us, by the Spirit's power, see miracles and healings and wonders. But that same Spirit also makes us servants. It makes us and remakes us in the likeness of the servant king. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us to imitate Jesus who took the very nature of a servant. In Galatians, he says, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. Ask the Spirit, the same Spirit that was in Jesus Christ works in us, in our lives. Our lives will start to look more like Jesus, and that means they will take on the character of a servant. And here's the question. If Jesus was willing to leave heaven, to sacrifice so much to move close to us in our brokenness, what are we willing to give up to move close to someone who is maybe very different from us? For the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, are we willing to love and serve those we're maybe afraid of, dismissive of, see us a write-off, See us a no hope project. I'm not talking here about, about getting on a plane and, and going across the world, what might be that for some of us. On the other hand, that journey to the other, it might be across the street. It might be across the office. It might be to pick up the phone and make a phone call we've been putting off for a long time. Mother Teresa used to pray, break my heart so the whole world can fall in. Break my heart so the whole world can fall in. Who or what is God breaking your heart for? And are you up for letting him do that? And if he does break your heart, what are you going to do about it? Because having your heart broken is not enough. Like Jesus, we have to be willing to get up close to that brokenness, to even share in it, and that means sharing in messy lives, 
That means being in uncomfortable situations. Martin Luther King in his sermons often used to say, the church suffers from a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. A high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. It's Christ-like action that counts. Jesus left heaven to be with us. As individuals, as a church, when we pray to receive the Holy Spirit, we should expect to be taken, like Jesus, to the wilderness. And the wilderness isn't just the place of personal temptation. It's that hard place of sacrificial service, where we serve the needy in Jesus' name, in the Spirit's power. And I can guarantee you, if you sincerely ask to be filled with the Spirit, expect to be taken to the broken, to the despised, the rejected, the dismissed, and the temptation for every follower of Jesus, I'm speaking to myself here too, is always to take the easier path. I'm gonna pray for us. For some of us this morning, we, we feel bruised and broken and we need to let Jesus to come close to us so that he can minister his grace. We need to let our guard down a little bit to trust that God is good and that as the Spirit-filled sovereign Lord, he will work for good in our situation. For some of us, that will mean inviting Jesus into your life for the first time and becoming a Christian and saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm okay for you to come into my brokenness. I'm gonna stop trying to climb this ladder myself. I need your help. For others, we already love the Lord, but we feel parched. We need refreshing. We need the same spirit of Jesus, okay? But marked out his kingdom to set a flame in our hearts again. A flame for the Lord, for the kingdom, a passion for the lost. We need the Holy Spirit to, to, to flood us, to revive us, to overcome that weariness and maybe even prejudice that's, that's crept in. We need the Spirit of Jesus to make us fit for his service again, to remind us that there's something to live for that's worth dying for. As the band comes and we close in worship, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray a really simple prayer. prayer. I'm gonna pray for the Holy Spirit to come. I don't know your situations. I don't know where you're at or what's going on, but the Lord does and he understands. And like I said, when we ask him in, he won't flinch or turn away. There's, there's no surprises to him, but we've kept hidden. It's not hidden to him. He knows already and he still wants to come in. He still wants to move close. He still wants to set up his home in our life. So I'm gonna pray now for the Lord to refresh us and revive us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit of God, Spirit that rests on Jesus like a dove, come to your people now. Fill our hearts. Be with us in our wilderness places. Make us strong. Make us fit for your service. Lord God, we say again that we love you. 
We thank you that you're willing to be with us no matter how messed up we are and that you are also willing to change us so that we can be fit for your purpose, to be servants to your broken, needy world. So we ask for your spirit to revive us again this morning, to revive your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.